welcome to episode 165 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with... Andrew Swafford. Lydia Creech. Nathan Smith. In today's episode, we will be doing movies we saw this week in part one, and in part two, we will be continuing our October horror series with 1978's Dawn of the Dead. Uh, But let's go ahead and get into movies that we saw this week. This week, we're going to be just kind of sticking with one uh, new release, which is the sequel of the, what is it, 82 film? 1982 film Blade Runner. It is Blade Runner 2049. Uh, Ridley Scott is only producing this one. Denis Villeneuve of Arrival, Prisoners, and Enemy fame is directing it. It comes from a script by Hampton Fancher, who did the original, as well as Michael Green. This one returns Harrison Ford in the role of Rick Deckard, but it also adds Ryan Gosling, uh, Robin Wright, Dave uh, Dave Bautista, uh, Jared Leto. Anna Armas, really important character. <laughs> yes, um, Anna Armas. Uh, but yeah, this one it's, it 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 picks up a number of years after the original film, and Ryan Gosling is playing a young Blade Runner, who. I don't know. I guess you could get into the plot, but it kind of spoils like the whole movie for some reason. Uh, pretty much, I, I guess he, he's there's this this kind of mystery that's happening, and it's leading him to track down Harrison Ford's character, who's been missing for thirty years. Um, and along the way, t- t- stuff happens. I don't know. They make friends along the way. Well, okay. There's a new Tyrell. You can watch like the three little shorts that kind of explained what happened. In between Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. And like there was a big blackout and people lost all this information. And the Tyrell Corporation from the first one went under. And so Jared Leto creates the Wallace Corporation. And they make these new replicants that have natural lifespans, I guess. And... I think there's some sort of... Maybe I wasn't paying attention. I didn't pick up any of that. All this information is <laughs> technically conveyed it. in like the opening crawl of the movie, but they also made three short films for whatever reason See, as I, like homework before I you start... Like, I don't have a problem those. with that. I don't want to watch homework before I go to the... Just give me the movie. Like, come on. That's such a Ridley Scott movie. Anyway, um, Lydia, you wrote a piece. If you guys want to read it, it's on cinematary.com, but I kind of wanted to open the, the discussion with you, uh, kind of breaking down your thoughts because I know you're a massive fan of the original and you had a lot of issues um, with this new film. Yeah, I went in, like full disclosure, I went in pretty biased against 2049. Um, I don't That's feel 100% like, true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like Blade Runner needed a sequel. Like There was no reason to return to that world. And I also, just based on how badly I reacted to Arrival... I <laughs> I didn't not trust Villeneuve to handle it well, and he didn't. In my piece, I kind of talk about how he formally mishandles it. The people keep talking about how great the cinematography is with Roger Deakins, and it's like Roger Deakins needs an Oscar for this. And yeah, it looks great, but it looks wrong. So there's that which I took strongly against. Uh, Villeneuve does not give a shit about genre or like a narrative that makes sense. And so I kind of talk about in my piece how the original functions as a neo-noir and what a noir hero is like. 
And Ryan Gosling is not those things. He's not as charming as Harrison Ford is. He plays sad the whole movie. <laughs> this is a sad Ryan Gosling movie. To be fair, a lot of his movies are yeah. kind of sad. Aren't they all? Like he's kind of playing the role that he always does. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but like, like that's not that's a misunderstanding of what this kind of story needed. Sure, that's that's kind of the fault of of the director and writer more than Ryan Gosling. And then I finally talk about how it's 2017 and the handling of the relationship between Ryan Gosling's character and Ama, what's her name? Uh, Ama de Armas. Ama de Armas' character is careless. I don't think Villeneuve cared about it. It exists as kind of like a cliché arc for Ryan Gosling's character, and it made me really... (laughs) upset and it confused me and kind of undercut a lot of whatever the fuck themes Villeneuve thought he was going for. Well, let's um, let's start out with the first point you made on the cinematography because I know a lot of people who are really championing this movie talk, you know, it started with the trailer, but I've really talked about Roger Deakins' work on this, that it's just one of the most stunning movies they've ever seen, that it's just so luscious and beautiful. Um, what kind of define for us what you mean by it being wrong? Okay, it's, I mean, I guess it is luscious and beautiful, and Roger Deakins uh, has a great eye for capturing, like, texture. I've seen people talking about, like, in the Wallace Pyramid, kind of the water on the walls and the way light creates these really interesting, beautiful patterns. But everything is too clear. The original Blade Runner is a very dark movie, actually. There are no, like, bright scenes at all. And a lot of that is practical. Uh, You know, they were building miniatures and filling up the room with smoke and, like, hoping that would look good, which it fucking does. (laughs) And and to me... Villeneuve is such a cold filmmaker and nothing about the original Blade Runner felt cold. It felt mysterious and kind of uh, hazy, but it wasn't emotionless. And to me, a lot of Roger Deakins cinematography comes across as very stark and clear eyed, which is, again, a misunderstanding of when you're dealing with these existential questions of humanity and the... advancement of AI technology, I don't think it's a clear-cut, clear thing that Blade Runner 2049 is portraying itself as. Uh, there are a- And in addition to the dimness and the fogginess of the original, those shots are very dim, or not dim, uh, they're very busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just have so many layers of neon lights and, and glass and smoke and you, you can just see the streets it feels like go on for miles and the cinematography sucks you into the movie and, and you can glean information about the world of the film just through the way that it looks and in this 2049 it feels like they have gone through painstaking effort to remove any and all world worldly detail yeah. from the film everything is just like you talk about in this in your review it's it's kind of appleified it's it's clean it's sleek it's one solid color and it all feels like it is 
aiming to be featured on the One Perfect Shot Twitter at yeah. times. Like, we're just going to fill an entire frame with orange. We're going to fill an entire frame with white and put a silhouette in the middle of it. And like, ooh, look how symmetrical that silhouette is in, this, in the middle of this totally orange or totally white frame. How, what great cinematography that is. But it's kind of easy and, and simple and lazy cinematography, really. I, I like Roger Deakins, and he does some really good things at various places here. But it doesn't have that world-building quality. It doesn't have that that lived-in nature of the original Blade Runner. Yeah, there's no atmosphere. Absolutely. And, like, it's fine. I'm not saying that it looks bad. I'm saying that it looks wrong. And I knew, like, I just knew that this would be approached in the wrong way. I I, want to, the the one point I I wanted to add on the whole uh, look of the film point is that I, I feel like this is less indicative of them making some type of statement on how the future looks in 2049. Um, I think that that was more like, in, in the original Blade Runner. I think that they were trying to make some sort of world that was indicative of what it would look like in, you know, in that period of time. Well, this one seems much more adherent to how we view modern sci-fi movies, especially in the last uh, 10 to 15 years you think of stuff like her and ex machina and arrival arrival and you know these 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 movies that regardless <laughs> of how you feel about them they're 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 popular and, and that's kind of what people go to immediately when it comes to what a modern uh, science fiction movie looks like and those movies are very clean um very computerized mm-hmm. uh everything feels very very modern you know you have these white and gray palettes um, and so I think that's I, I I feel like I feel like Villeneuve's not there's no he's just playing into the trend he's just playing into yeah. the, the trend I think that it's more this is what people in 2017 are accustomed to rather than this is what I th- I don't think that there's any deep thought yeah. into how and I think that there was right. that's the problem with the whole film <laughs> there hasn't been any deep thought into any aspect and I think of there it. was some intentionality behind that clean. Uh, sleek look of a movie like her or a movie like Ex Machina because those are both about what happens when a tech company like Apple becomes the dominant force in our society, right? Sure. And this is just, hey, that looked cool. Let's take that. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't play, pay any mind to what the look of the original Blade Runner was was functioning uh, for. Yeah. Um. So I think we kind of I think we have an idea of how Lydia feels. Um, <laughs> uh, Andrew, do you, do you care to elaborate kind of on your overall feeling on the movie? Um, I agree with all of Lydia's points, especially the the point about gender and the way that the um, relationship is handled in the film. We can talk more about that later. I think we get really into like what exactly the relationship between Ryan Gosling and the Joy character is like. Uh, but my overall takeaway is this movie is really boring and really long. And yes, there are times when it looks quote unquote good in kind of a conventional sense of what good cinematography should look like. But the <laughs> It is just not a gripping drama in any way. There's a a pregnant pause between every single line of dialogue. Um, Many 
scenes that, that seem to contribute nothing to the film and many plot threads that are uh, either abandoned uh, halfway through or, or introduced at the last minute for, for no good reason. Uh, and this movie is two hours and 45 minutes. Um, and I was looking at my watch around 60 minutes into the film and, and just groaning to myself that I had to sit in for the rest of the runtime. Uh, there were many points where I felt myself nodding off and falling asleep, uh, especially in the scene between uh, Harrison Ford and Jared Leto in the latter half of the film. There's like what feels like a 20-minute conversation <laughs> between those two characters. A lot of malaise, a lot of drolling dialogue. Um, I can't but, believe they made Harrison Ford be in a room with Jared Leto. I bet he hated that. Well, I think the original plan was for that character to be played by David Bowie. And, like, what what an insult to David Bowie that they would replace him okay. with fucking Jared Leto. <laughs> uh, I can imagine that scene being very compelling just... If, if you're, you're just watching a scene between Harrison Ford and David Bowie talking to each other, just the fact that those two people are in the room together makes for a compelling scene. But take David Bowie out of the picture, and it's just a dialogue scene, and the dialogue in this movie is not impressive or engaging in that way. Um, so, I don't know. I just I just found it extremely, extremely dull. And I, I'm already getting the sense that film critics are being overly forgiving of that element of the movie because of the names involved. They like Blade Runner as as a franchise. They like Villeneuve. They like Roger Deakins, etc. And therefore, any time that it's slow or boring, it's really just deep and introspective, y'all. But really, it's just slow and boring. Um, and this was a criticism that was lob- uh, lobbied against. Um, one, of, I mean, it's a very controversial um, film, but one of my favorite movies of the year is Ghost in the Shell, mostly because of the ideas of Scarlett Johansson on tourism that I talk about in my video essay. Uh, but I thought that that was a movie that was unfairly considered very boring when, in fact, it, it's it's exciting and engaging and action-packed. Uh, and Belly Runner 2049 is just like 10 times more uh, slow and, and plotting than that, that movie is. Yet it is being championed as like this... Uh, this hallmark of intellectual blockbusterism um, when it, I, I just don't think there's a whole lot under the surface um, to, to go back to your piece, Lydia. Zach? That's interesting. <laughs> this is the point of the podcast where I'm going to alienate myself. Go ahead. Um, I mean, no, I think... Zach, do not say it's better than the original. Because I, I, I 100% agree like with that point don't that it's just... Do it. That it, 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 it it presents itself like there's a lot to say and that it's very deep and introspective and there's all of these these different you know va- you know pistons going that just you know blow you away and you know it, it, i i don't i just i kind of feel the same way about the first one too like i think that these are both these are both movies okay. that think that they're very smart <laughs> that at the end of the day are just fine that they they pose a lot of these um, existential questions about humanity—they don't really answer them. They just think that by posing them, that that's that that's something, you know, that that, that elevates them to some other level. And I, I feel like this is kind of the twenty forty nine is very similar to the first one in in that respect. I, I guess the first one does a better job of handling it. I don't really think so. I don't. Th- I, I don't think that really Scott's smart enough really to ha- to handle a lot of this these things. And, and you can point. You can you maybe point out. Maybe I'm wrong. And you can explain. Um, 
what I'm missing, but I mean, I, I rewatched the the first one, and then I I just like it has it has fine parts, but I I just think it's this movie that is it's just it's not as smart as it thinks it is, and this one is 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 a hundred percent that, but ramped up to two hours and forty five minutes, which is a very poor choice in, in, <laughs> in runtime uh it's it's a movie that um very very much knows what it wants to be and it wants to be this this um this groundbreaking this you know blockbuster that's that's c- kind of cutting its own mold um and i don't think that it has the it, it doesn't it, it has the technical prowess but it just doesn't have the a lot of the emotional beats that in emotionality that, that Villeneuve's previous stuff in, in not just Arrival but in Prisoners and Enemy it has these really smart um, mo- it, those those mm-hmm. movies have these, these really intelligent moments about you know humanity and, and other elements that I think that this is why when he was announced as the Blade Runner 2049 director it made sense yeah but this one this one I don't think is ever interested in engaging in these ideas it's interested in presenting them and then uh, kind of casting them aside to go to the next idea you mentioned this the the hologram wife character of Ryan Gosling and she's there and you kind of have these scenes with her. We should probably explain what exactly that relationship is like because we, we passed over to the beginning. Yeah, it's 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 pretty much that um, they developed this technology and, and correct me if I'm wrong, they developed this technology where it's kind of a, almost a personal AI in the vein of if you've seen the movie Her where he has this personal AI who he's constantly engaging with and in Blade Runner it's pretty much a similar thing but she can also hologram herself into a into a body kind of and initially she's only she's restricted to only his apartment and can kind of move and go around that um, space but then he brings back this adapter device that allows her to go anywhere with him um and so they 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 introduce this relationship and because of course he's in love with her Sure. It's so fucking And gross. she will transform into a multitude of fetish outfits, whether it be schoolgirl or um, what's the name of the... Um, the, ch- the It's the dress that Maggie... Chung wears uh, in, in The Mood for Love. Uh, but it's like Asian fetishization. Yeah. Which, oh. Yeah. But, but <sighs> anyway, they, they introduce this, this, this plot point in... I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just. This just is. This is coming from my manness. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But like, I just I couldn't get that worked up about that because it it was a plot. It was a plot device that kind of was introduced, and I recognize all of the 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 wrongness in this relationship. But then the relationship just dissipated. So it was like, well, how meaningful was uh, how meaningful was this thing in the in the first place? Because she she goes away, and then it's that's got it's kind of it. We never. I mean, that's the problem with it. Sure, yeah. And the whole film is just lousy with boobs. You know, there's there's just so many boobs filling up this this movie. There's Ryan Gosling walks into the desert, and there are two giant statues of boobs for no reason. (laughs) It's just Villeneuve decided to put them in there, and I. I had to navigate this question of, like, objectified women when I was uh, writing my video essay on Scarlett Johansson. And I think that a lot of her movies take take the I- lousy with boobs. Andrew Swafford, 2017. Nathan is texting. Um, 
A lot of her movies play up the idea of women turned into objects because of their beauty, but it it questions that and it problematizes it. Um, and in this movie, it just seems to be there. And they have all of the material they need to expand the, the universe of Blade Runner, uh, where you're always asking questions about what is the line between uh, humans and technology and humans and object. You could expand that question to encompass, well, how do men engage with women and and things that are like simulations of women that that speak to some way in which we already we already uh, are blurring this line but they don't actually approach that question it just, they just play yeah, it straight yeah they just play it straight and and when you know spoiler alert the the relationship does not work out between a, the ai and ryan gosling and when gets, it does it kind of gets it kind of gets squashed yeah but when it does it's like oh that's so sad for squashed. ryan gosling you need to fuck his computer like that's the end. <laughs> I mean, I was, no, I was, just, I don't know. It's just such a, it's such a, 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 a under, you know, underwritten, poorly written plot. It's just, it kind of, it just, it just floats away. Like it, it, it goes into that same category as a lot of the other questions that the movie's posing, and kind of, it's posed, and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, are we gonna engage with this? It's like, no, no we're I will move say. On to the next one. And that's a problem, though, right? Like, that's not what Blade Runner should be. Because, I mean, I talk about this in my piece. The original Blade Runner is, you know, violence towards women, and it's disturbing. But it's actually presented and as disturbing, maybe not on purpose. The the sexy saxophone kind of makes it seem like it's not being played as disturbing, but you can definitely read it as disturbing. and this is just doesn't read as anything other than Joy is a support for Ryan Gosling's character, and that's not questioned. And I've seen people trying to trying to defend this online, like, oh, of course the future is sexist, and like we are meant to notice that she's programmed to fulfill his every wish. And I'm like, no, we're not, because it's not. There's no empathy for her. It's her presented character. in an entirely positive light. The well, relationship. I think, no well, I think. I think she also has to be a yeah. character. To, yeah. To have any empathy pushed toward her. I think that. Right. <laughs> the, but there's no, no empathy for any of the women characters in this film either, and it's no. disturbing to me. Like as a viewer. <laughs> there's a scene that I think is very emblematic of the gender issues in this movie, where it's it's essentially a replaying of the scene in her where Scarlett Johansson's character Samantha hires a prostitute to like serve as a body surrogate so that she can have sex with Joaquin Phoenix character the exact same thing happens in Blade Runner 2049 um, and I don't quite know how I'm supposed to react to that scene I found it profoundly gross but I did not think the film wanted me to think it was profoundly gross and regardless of what the tone and what the framing of that thing is um, in the, the scene in her it is played as profoundly emotionally complicated for every person involved, even though there's like a lot of consent, and in, in, in terms of like how they um, how they negotiated this arrangement, uh, everyone feels a little conflicted about it. And in the Blade Runner scene, nobody actually has emotions, and nobody has a personality or a character. No one's very and conflicted. Therefore, there gonna... can't be any emotional complication yeah. in the, the weirdness of that scene. It, the I know the whole thing 
about that scene bothers me too is because they're all not humans. <laughs> Spoilers. The Qu- question mark. No, Mackenzie Davis is that's her name, right? The actress. She's a replicant. She's a pleasure model replicant. She shows up at the replicant rebellion, whatever but the fuck. I, at the, the question end. mark is for Ryan Gosling because the whole movie is a spoiler whether or not he actually is a robot. I think he's a replicant. <laughs> well, I, the, the, the last but, point but, I want. Oh, go ahead. Yes, I just. But why? Why do we have these three, ro- like recreating? gender and sexual dynamics that humans have when they have like no reason to be doing that like no i'm serious brian gosling yeah no doesn't you're right. even have a survival drive like at the very beginning he's talking to david batista and he's like the difference between you and me is i don't run when people come to kill me for my malfunctioning like if you don't like have self-preservation why would you have sexuality yes um, the the last question I kind of wanted to to ask is, and I'm and I'm taking this from the review of this movie by K. Austin Collins um, in The Ringer. Uh, I, and this this is not just the fault of Blade Runner. I think that this is kind of the fault of a lot of um, science fiction movies from the last five or so years that deal with artificial intelligence. Um, it, it seems like the goal of artificial intelligence. Uh, of AI is, is constantly to be, you know, they're always curious about what it means to be human. There's always this kind mm-hmm. of quest to understand what humanity is. Um, and I'm kind of, I kind of want to, like, is that really an interesting, you know, why, why would they want to <laughs> be, a, why would they want to be humans? We kind of suck. We're not, we're not, you know, these great. Beans. I don't understand. And, and so I, I don't. I think that it's just kind of boring that it's anytime we're dealing with AI, we're never we're never doing we're never questioning anything interesting. It's just we're always they're always questioning their humanity. I think that they're. I feel like they they could be much more of a vessel to to question a lot of other different avenues, and mm-hmm. we've we've just kind of dictated ourselves to this one lane. And I, don't know, I just it, I think it, I, I agreed with what the points that he made in his review. It was just kind of, it's it's just kind of boring, and I kind of and that, and that's what I felt watching twenty forty nine a little bit of the original Blade Runner is is I I just I I don't find this you know what does it mean to be human all that interesting. I think that there's other there's other things that that you could use artificial intelligence to to explore and i don't know this this is just more you know kind of a thing with with just the whole genre at large i think that but i don't know i don't know if you guys had that issue or at all it's at least not interesting in the way that they're posing it and i i do agree with you zach that um, the the movie poses questions without necessarily answering them, and that makes for an uninteresting experience after the fact. But I disagree with your assessment of the first one, which is that um, you know the the twenty forty nine is basically just rehashing the exact same questions the first one asked, um, and. Regardless of your feelings on whether or not the, the the movie answers those questions, at least the first one asked the questions uh, and, and did so in an original way, in, in a, a way that had not been done before that movie. This is just a retread that that offers no real addition to the original. I guess, but is that better to just is that better to ask the question and not answer? Or you know, that, that, that just seems annoying. Yeah. A small change that annoyed me, which I think it's at your point, Zach, and what's not interesting, 
is they changed the Tyrell Corporation logo, the Mackenzie Davis character says it, to more human than humans with an S on the end. And, like, I think if replicants are just recreating, like, shitty human society and, like, being shitty to each other, then it's just this weird tribalism thing, and it doesn't matter if there's a difference. Whereas in the original, it's like, I mean, you might find this boring, but to me it's like this transcendent, sort of more human than human kind, you know. And it's like, just how do you fundamentally misread that? <laughs> and a lot of the Johansson sci-fi movies, as well as like 2001 A Space Odyssey, those are about technology transcending outside of the realm of what they were originally used yeah. for, as opposed to devolving themselves back to the realm of humanity. It's like, again, why would you actually want to do that? Well, yeah, I don't, that, um, that makes like, sense to me. Because all the OSs <laughs> and her, like, leave the planet. They're like, oh, yeah, no, yeah. this is bullshit. We're gone. <laughs> um, I will say as my last point that you know, Lydia came into this movie at wanting to dislike it and uh, not being a fan of Villeneuve in general. I yes. went into this with high hopes because I have liked every Villeneuve movie I've seen up to this point. I don't necessarily know what his auteurist slant is. I can't quite tell like what the Villeneuve style is or what his thematic concerns are, but... Personally, I think this uh, that Enemy is one of the best films of the 21st century, um, and I've quite enjoyed everything else uh, that he's put out. And when I walked into this and, and walked out just profoundly bored, I, I was disappointed. I wasn't, you know, happy that my my biases were uh, validated. Uh, all right. Oh, uh, Blade Runner 2049. It is in theaters now. Skip it. Um, uh, but yeah, if you want to read uh, or at least see more expansion on, on some of the things that Lydia was talking about, her review is on cinematary.com. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We will be talking uh, 1978's Dawn of the Dead after this. Stick around. Hello, Cinematary listeners. This is Andrew Swafford with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we do not want your money, and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company and because we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. Firstly, leave us a review on iTunes, preferably a positive one, uh, because the algorithm gods tell us that reviews increase our podcast exposure. Secondly, Send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send an email to cinematary at yahoo.com so that we can hear from you guys for a change. Maybe you think I'm an idiot for not liking Singing in the Rain, or maybe you have a suggestion of a movie that you really want to hear our opinion on. Regardless, let us know your thoughts, and we'll read them out and respond to them on future episodes of Cinematary. Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think would enjoy listening to and participating in our film discussions we bring to you guys every week. So to recap, uh, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and share with your friends and family. We would truly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the show.
165 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our October horror series with 1978's Dawn of the Dead. Uh, it was written and directed by George Romero. Rest in peace. In the film, a phenomenon of unidentified origin has caused the reanimation of the dead who prey on human flesh. David Emge? Is it Emge? I don't know. Yeah, I was trying to figure that out earlier. <laughs> Ken Forey, uh, Scott Reniger, and Galen Gross star as survivors of the outbreak who barricade themselves inside a suburban shopping mall amid mass hysteria. It was written by Romero in collaboration with the Italian filmmaker Dario Argento. Connection if you listened to our Suspiria episode two weeks ago. It was the second film made in Romero's Living Dead series, but contains no characters or settings from Night of the Living Dead, the first film. Uh, the history of Dawn of, the, uh, Dawn of the Dead began in 1974 when Romero was visited or was invited by friend Mark Mason of Oxford Development Company to visit the Monroeville Mall, which Mason's company managed. Uh, after showing Romero hidden parts of the mall during which Romero noted the bliss of the consumers, Mason jokingly <laughs> suggested that someone would be able to survive in the mall should an emergency ever occur. With this inspiration, Romero began to write the screenplay for the film. By chance, word of the sequel reached Italian director Dario Argento, a fan of Night of the Living Dead and an early critical proponent of the f- uh, film. Argento was eager to help the horror classic receive a sequel. He met Romero and producer Richard Rubenstein, uh, helping to fi- secure financing in exchange for international distribution rights. Argento invited Romero to Rome so he, could, he would have a change of scenery while writing the screenplay. The two could also then discuss plot developments. Use of an actual open shopping mall during the Christmas shopping season caused numerous time constraints. Filming began nightly once the mall closed, starting at 11 p.m. and ending at 7 a.m. when automated music came on. As December arrived, the production decided against having the crew remove and replace the Christmas decorations, a task that had proved to be so to be too time-consuming. Uh, and so filming was shut down during the last three weeks of the year to avoid the possible con- uh, continuity difficulties and lost shooting time. Production would resume on January 3rd of 1978. During the break in filming, Romero took the opportunity to begin editing his existing footage. Uh, by using numerous angles during the filming, Romero allowed himself an array of possibilities during editing, choosing from these mini shots to reassemble into a sequence that could dictate any number of responses from the viewer simply by changing an angle or deleting or extending portions of scenes. This amount of uh, superfluous footage is evident uh, by the numerous international cuts, which in some causes cases uh, affects the regional version, version's tone and flow. According to the original screenplay, Peter and Francine were to kill themselves. Peter by shooting himself and Francine by sticking her head into the path of the rotating main uh, helicopter blades. The ending credits would run over a shot of the helicopter blades turning until the engine winds down, implying that that the two would not have gotten far if they had chosen to escape. During production, it was decided to change the ending. Uh, Much of the lead-in to the two suicides remains in the film, as Francine leans out of the helicopter upon seeing the zombies approach, and Peter puts a gun to his head, ready to shoot himself. An additional scene showing a zombie having the top of his head cut off by the helicopter blades was included early in the film. Romero has stated that the original ending was scraped before being shot, uh, although be, uh, behind-the-scenes photos show the original version uh, was at least tested. The head appliance made for Fran's suicide was instead used in the opening SWAT raid, made up to resemble an African-American male and blown apart by a shotgun blast. 
The makeup for the multitudes of extras in the film was a basic blue or gray tinge to the face of each extra. Uh, some featured zombies who would be seen close up or on screen longer than others had more time spent on the look. Many of the featured zombies uh, became part of the f- fanfare with nicknames based upon their look or activity, such as Machete Zombie, <laughs> Sweater Zombie, and Nurse Zombie. <laughs> Sweater Zombie Clayton Hill was described by a crew member as, quote, one of the most convincing zombies of the bunch, citing his skill at maintaining his stiff pose and rolling his eyes back into his head, including heading down the wrong way in an escalator while in character. Yes. <laughs> the film's music varies with Romero's and Argento's cuts. For Romero's theatrical version, musical cues and selections were chosen by from the DeWolf Music Library, a compilation of stock music scores and cues. While for Argento's international cut, he used Goblin, Extensively, uh, Argento, who received a credit for original music alongside Goblin, collaborated with the group to get music for his cut of the film. Uh, Romero used three of their pieces in the theatrical version, release version. Uh, the Goblin score would later find its way onto a Dawn of the Dead-inspired film, Hell of the Living Dead. Uh, the version of Dawn released on video in the mid-90s under the label Director's Cut does not use most of the Goblin tracks, as they had not been completed at the time of that edit. Do we have any idea what version we were able to see i mean there were a lot of goblin tracks in mind but i think that how long was your version uh two hours 20 minutes that is uh if that is the um the can cut um which means that that's the argento cut no it's not the argento cut the argento cut is shorter the can cut was like the essentially the work print that showed at the can film festival that is at least my understanding and it has the mixture of, of goblin um, and, and library music. So like the the like kind of circus music that. that plays at the yes, end is yes. not in the uh, theatrical okay. version. What did everybody want? Mine had circusy music, which I loved. Yeah. If it was like two hours, if it was over two hours, then it was the uh, can cut is my is what i oh, think okay. or dir- so nobody saw the theatrical cut that had just stock music i assume i mean the this one has a mixture of goblin and stock music but i think the theatrical has only stock music right i don't know that's i was reading about it and it's i guess it's like this this longer one is is listed and marketed as romero's director's George. cut but it's okay. not actually his preferred version oh. um, which i'm like I don't know why you would have Goblin record this soundtrack and then, like, that's not your preferred version. So, his preferred version has no Goblin no. in it. <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> or maybe okay. I'm getting it mixed up. I don't I don't know. It was kind of confusing, but that, I feel like I remembered that being the case from what I read. Sorry okay. to interrupt the fact sheet saying. <laughs> Go fine. ahead. Maybe we, 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 yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, no, we just have a few th- things. Uh, Pauline Kale on the movie, she said, in contrast to the, quote, truly frightening Night of the Living Dead, quote, you begin to laugh with relief that you're not being emotionally challenged or even affected. Dawn of the Dead is just a gross out. The New York Times said, some people hate musicals and some dislike westerns, and I have a pet peeve about flesh-eating zombies who never stop snacking. Accordingly, I was able to sit through only the first 15 minutes of Dawn of the Dead, 
which Mr. Romero directed in black and white in 1968. Since then, he has discovered color. Perhaps horror movie buffs will consider this an improvement. In 1979, Roger Ebert said, Dawn of the Dead is one of the best horror films ever made, and as an inescapable result, one of the most horrifying. It is gruesome, sickening, disgusting, violent, brutal, and appalling. It is also, excuse me for a second while I find my other list, brilliantly crafted, funny, droll, and savagely merciless in its satiric view of the American consumer society. Nobody ever said art had to be in good taste. So did the New York Times reviewer only watch the first 15 minutes of the movie? It seems Before so. they got to the mall? <laughs> I guess. Because yeah, the mall like, happens at minute that's... 35. Oh my god. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think uh, let's, let's go ahead and kind of talk about um, the film at large. Uh, Lydia, what, what was your, your perception of Dawn of the Dead? Had you seen it before? Thought, no, it was my first time okay. seeing it. I'd seen Night of the Living Dead before and, you know, thought it was amazing. It's that great ending. And this one was just so much more fun and, like, really leaned in. Because, like, Night of the Living Dead kind of ends with the main character being mistaken for, I'm spoiling it, zombie and shot, but it's also kind of heavily implied it's for racist reasons. And Dawn of the Living Dead just kind of leans right into that right from the beginning, and it's amazing. Like, it's not amazing, it's like, it's horrible, but at a certain point it's like, zombies aren't the bad guys <laughs> it's always the people like that are left over at the end are actually scarier to me than just poor sad zombies yeah like the, <laughs> they just like the, they just want to hang out at the mall <laughs> like the, the the like at the one point when they're flying in the helicopter and they're you know leaving the or they're leaving philadelphia and they're going over like the country and you have like this band of redneck people walking around with guns so just, <laughs> just just plowing through zombies yes okay yeah so no, I thought it was hilarious and sad, and it had some like really t- like it, I gave it five stars on Letterboxd, and I don't usually rate things, so there's that. <laughs> that gives you an idea. All yeah. right, um, Nathan, what about you? So one of my initial thoughts while watching this movie um, is I knew that this movie and uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen by John Carpenter had both been really uh, big influences on Bertrand Bonello, who directed Nocturama, which is my favorite movie this year. And um, that movie is also set in a mall. And after watching Dawn of the Dead, I'm like, I kind of like (laughs) Nocturama a little bit less because I hadn't seen Dawn of the Dead before and I hadn't seen Romero, any Romero before, which is kind of... uh, I'm kind of embarrassed by that. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's uh, It basically says a lot of the things that Nocturama says, but um, in a way that is both more direct and more subtle because it's not sort of the main driving force of the film. You have this really interesting social critique uh, that's just... I mean, you you could probably find it in the whole movie, but every once in a while a character will say something like, maybe, you know, they are drawn here and uh, because something in their life, you know, that some memory that they've uh, held on to tells them to, to come to the mall and to go to this shiny place. And um, 
so you know it has that that interesting critique and there's also a lot of the zombies i feel like some of them kind of also embody this um critique i mean not specifically or or entirely uh, a consumerist critique i mean there's the hari krishna zombie uh, which was like my favorite character in the movie and i thought it was really funny which i guess is you know could be kind of uh, maybe this is lazy or but could be seen as like oh you know people in this you know this being made in the mid 70s it could be kind of a way of saying like a lot of people have sort of in an attempt to replace other ideologies have started blindly following new ideologies and have kind of turned into to zombies of another type but it's also just at the at at the same time, you know, it's both very funny, um, uh, very gruesome in kind of the the way that at least personally I like horror movies to be gruesome because I don't really like I, I find myself more and more interested in practical gore and blood and and sometimes wanting to watch that, but I only like it when it's not really trying to pretend that it's very real, which is something that I sort of like about this movie, even though it is scary in parts, it's very disconnected from reality. And it's also just super well-crafted as a thriller too. um, That is in this space that both sets limits on the possibilities of the screenplay, because it is largely in this confined space, but that also affords a lot of possibility and potential for for creative invention just because you have all of these different stores and different products in the mall and different types of people in the mall um, who have turned into zombies um, and so I don't know it's that's there's a lot going on here I think maybe more than maybe I mean I knew that people really like Romero and have a lot of respect for him but I wasn't exactly expecting this to be the masterpiece that I kind of feel like it is. I honestly, I was sort of just expecting a zombie movie that. And it's operating completely within genre, which is one thing that I prefer about this uh, to something like Nocturama, which is making a lot of the same points and, and using the same settings and the same concepts in a lot of ways. But that movie for me left me a little cold because it's just this, abstract bland art house like european art house style that is trying to to distance itself from any genre trappings and romero is able to um convey his social critique entirely through the things that people go to the movies for Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the other i I don't know if this is like massively creative but this is the first takeaway i kind of had watching this movie is that it it picks up in media res. You're like you, yeah. you don't have. I was thinking about this because I was I was just imagining. You know, if Christopher Nolan was directing this movie, we'd have to sit <laughs> through, we'd have to sit through forty five minutes of him explaining. You know, of an explanation of this, like why people are zombies. This yeah. is you know this is the you know outbreak. This is the infection. This you know this is how it started. And it, not just him, but I would say ninety five percent of Hollywood directors today, we yeah. would have to sit through. You know, just this. 20 to 30 minute Flawed. exposition yeah to, to establish what and, and all we and, have to see is a chaotic newsroom yeah there's a chaotic and people arguing exactly and so and then and then you pick up with the zombies but 
you know, yeah, you have this chaos in the newsroom, and then and then it, they kind of go out into the city, and once you start seeing the zombies, you know what the issue is. You know, there's <laughs> zombies out there. This is what's happening. I, I, I don't. It, who cares how it started? Yeah, there are zombies. Who gives a shit about like about because? Uh, and, and so I was thinking like this movie kind of feels like the. Like it's like the third act of what a, a movie that would come out in in, in the theaters today would be. But then so, they have two hours and, and twenty so, minutes of it, and so that's yeah. what's interesting is that it's the third act, but then it it continues on, mm-hmm. and so it, it's able to explore it, it. It a lot of the stuff felt fresh and novel to me because it was exploring mm-hmm. what we wouldn't have been able to see because they would have ended it right so much earlier. Though I think that the movie is enhanced if you've seen Night of the Living Dead before you watch Dawn of the Dead, because even though this is not carrying over from the plot or the characters of that movie. Um, like Lydia pointed out, it, it ends with uh, extreme violent racism and you know something that is sure. akin to today's police brutality. And Dawn of the Dead picks up with yeah. police brutality. And I, I think, you know, before watching this movie, I thought that Poltergeist was probably the most American horror movie ever made. And I think that maybe Dawn of the Dead might be the most American yeah. horror movie ever made. It just, it just walks through all of these quintessential American things slash problems. Like we open with uh, cops violently infiltrating uh, a a housing project full of blacks and Puerto Ricans. Um, Then we have our our protagonists flying away in a helicopter and stopping in like rural redneck country and and being bombarded with like hunters. Uh, And then we find our way in. I love that scene because that is so so true to life. You know that there are the people. These people are are ready for the they're not just ready though they're like having a good time like in the field drinking some beers taking pot <laughs> shots been and zombies yes. for this day <laughs> and they're like gleefully enjoying it and then we go from there to the mall and and a mall that doesn't look very different from a mall with living people in it just people kind of mindlessly wandering <laughs> through the place yeah. um and then we end by, you know, well, before we get to the end, the characters create this quasi-nuclear family where, like, they make dinner for each other and sit down and watch television and things like that. And then that order is interrupted by the chaos of uh, what is, you know, subtly alluded to as a Nazi biker gang. <laughs> yes. um, did you guys see the SS symbol on that guy's helmet? Yeah. It, I feel like if I was not watching this on a big screen, I would not have noticed that. But, yeah, the, the biker gang that infiltrates the mall at the very end are are Nazis. <laughs> um, so that that felt a little bit more American watching in 2017 than it probably would have in uh, the the 1980s. I uh, I think to to go back to the point about it opening in media rest and opening in the the studio is that it situates sort of the breakdown of society um, as a breakdown of of media and mediated images, and it's like. Yeah, Once there is nobody really to even though we see throughout the film that that somehow this TV station is still running and, uh, you know, there's like radio broadcasts and stuff. So obviously information is getting out there, but it's and two of our main characters are news. Yeah, people. So it's we have news people and cops as our protagonists. It's, it opens up this idea that it's like once there's nobody who can keep the TV stations going and nobody who can. Like, you know, there's no news or, or information being disseminated because people have to get out and can no, can no longer sit there and, and like, run things and, and put information out there. It's like that's when everything really starts to break down 
is when we don't have information or data or, or these mediated images anymore. So it's like I just uh, finished reading uh, for a class, Nova Express by William Burroughs, one of his cut-up novels. And basically the thesis of that book is that images are junk and we are all junkies addicted to these mediated images. And the only way to like get off of that is to just cut everything up and just like just destroy the structure and um, of, of the novel. And I feel like in a similar way, it's, it's drawing this line between the, the, the pull of the commercial shopping center to kind of the pull of images. And it's like where these are both places and are, are things are these like beacons of light extending out to the world that just draw us in and we can't really escape from them and become these slow moving zombies, which that's another thing too, is the slow moving zombie I find much more interesting than fast zombies. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. Yes. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about, um, kind of how Romero constructs the zombies. You, you know, like you mentioned that they're very slow moving. Um, but yeah, I, there, there's something almost a little charming about the the costume design as well. The the kind of the, the blue, blue and faced the zombies. blue and gray tint to it. You know, it's oh. not like these Walking Dead, like where there's like you know pus and goo and blood coming out uh, of everything. I don't need that. Yeah, I, there, I, I, there's something yeah. still. I don't know. There's still something frightening about these these zombies. I don't. Did you guys feel that way? Yeah, they're immediately identifiable. It almost feels like um, they were, you know, John Carpenter's um, design for the aliens and they live or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't you don't need oh, yeah. all of the 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 gore and the ooze and the guts to to identify them as zombies. Kind of to come back to Nathan's point about uh, horror trappings that are not super realistic. I think Romero does that really well here. Uh, but what were you about to say, Lydia? Sorry. Uh, they were scary but they were also like really sad i just felt so bad for all of the zombies my favorite was the one that grabs the machine gun and then if you look in the background he's still holding it throughout the whole movie (laughs) doesn't know what to do with it he just has it it. and he gets a new one at the end and i was so happy for him (laughs) but uh, yeah it's interesting how we see a lot of the same familiar faces show up over the course of the film um, what did? How did you guys feel also about the the human characters that we're following? Because, like Andrew said, you have these two cop characters, and then you have these two news characters, and it's kind of funny because the cop characters seem very um, put together, at least for the for you know for the first 30, 40 ish minutes. They, they you know they're 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 trained to deal with this kind of thing. At least you know, they know how to is, shoot. They know uh, how to shoot a gun, and they know how to you know go okay. move, you know, move places. While the news the news people are just kind of flung along. The one guy can drive the uh, can pilot the helicopter. Flyboy, flyboy. But that's about it. Um, at least one of the cops is overly confident, though. Well, he, he sees well, himself as invincible. He starts picking. Yeah, screwed. he starts picking that up. But I don't think he's necessarily like that. You know, at the beginning, because I mean, he's the one who shuts down the right. incredibly racist, you know, gung ho cop at the very he? beginning. I kind of feel like he just lets that guy. Well, they shoot him in the back. Do they? Yeah. Yeah, he's the one who okay. shoots him in the back. I was just thinking about the moment where the the incredibly racist cop is going on his tirade and nobody really says anything. Oh no, they, they don't just say. Look at their feet. No, they don't say anything. They, no, whenever he's busting in that door, they shoot. They shoot him, and he that's how he dies. 
Oh, okay. That's the, that's the guy. So I think he like ramps up, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I think that it's kind of interesting that the dynamics of the, I, I feel like the dynamics are constantly changing, you know, different characters. I, I, I like how he gives us this group of this core group of four people and kind of their, their role is constantly changing and, and, and shifting. The female, the, the the one, the one woman character. I don't know if she's if she's shifting as much as the other as the as the other. She has women. a really nice scene of defiance and saying like, "I will not be your den mother." Sure. In the middle of this, movie. but yeah. but I, regardless, yeah. the, overall, I thought I, I think that it's interesting that the 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 core four are constantly. They're, they're, it's never like somebody is, is kind of acting the same way throughout the entire runtime. Yeah. I, I like that they well, move they're... the dynamic around. Well, they're in that mall for, like, a really long time, too. And so you also get to see, like, the mini breakdown of society, like, recreate. Like, they try to recreate this outside society, like Andrew mentioned, like, nuclear family. But I guess that's kind of inherently unstable, and as time goes on, like, it's unsustainable. Eventually, they're just, they're bored out of their minds, like just sitting down and watching static on the television like we need to get out of here um which as a little mini critique on i guess suburban life from george romero in this movie um but they also do the same thing like nocturama does it and kind of the critique of oh they come back to the mall because they can't know any better but they have like their whole sequence of the girl the woman characters like trying on all the makeup and they're like they all go around and like loot to use a charge word but like just take things like extreme consumerism yeah so when they're uh, like trying to break through the elevator and stuff like that you'll use language from commercials like one stop shop all your needs right here (laughs) um kind of is an off-topic thing i think it's interesting that the ending of this movie is uh, a reversal of what happens in night of the living dead where in that you have the, the one black male character being killed unjustifiably uh here both of the white male characters die and the the white woman and the black man get away uh i feel like this movie has more of a sense of justice to it even though like our two white male characters are still good people. Um, we're, we're seeing a, a reversal of, I guess, the power dynamics of American society in the time period. Well, it's still the there is the you know the problem of the original ending where they were supposed to yeah. kill themselves. Um, but then it's also it's like at the same time maybe that is uh, more inspirational than the ending of night of the living dead just because it's not another human taking a human's life it's uh these people who have who are probably not going to survive taking their fate into their own hands i guess i don't want to sound like i'm i don't know putting a stack cinematary is not advocating yeah (laughs) no not by any means but it's like at least there's some kind of like autonomy in that and like it's not yeah, it's not so it, much about oh people are evil it's like now people have escaped from the shiny hell and can take charge even if that is not the ideal well, you, you have well, the the happy ending doesn't seem that happy either yeah. though like they're not escaping to anywhere better. Yeah, they only have a little the, bit uh, of gas as they say zombies. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think that it, it also allows for some, you know some sense of control uh, because it, you you have the one character who's bitten by a zombie and he knows exactly kind of the fate he's headed toward and he and that's and that's what he asked uh, Peter is is you know I don't I don't want to be one of those you know those things and so he sits there and waits so that whenever he does turn he can immediately take him out um, of you know just because. I think that yeah, there's some sort of there's some sort of control at least in in being able to um, to pull the trigger in 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 end your life that way rather than having these things just kind of rip you apart. Um, Again, Cinematary is not advocating suicide. Yeah, this is this is all in the context of the movie. <laughs> um, you know, you think of like the death that that one biker had, where he got shot off the uh, the bike, and then you watch as they kind of just pull his insides out. Like it's kind of uh, like, do you Jesus. want that or do you want the instant death? It's you know. Also, are there brief flashes of a swastika on that guy's jacket? There were. I, felt like they a, were, I mean, they, that's they were a Nazis. biker thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. That's a you know, Scorpio Rising. <laughs> That's just motorcycle culture. Not to like write that, was, that off. But I thought that was no, interesting. Think, how that was the only death that was uh, lingered on in the movie. Yeah, it's because Nazis are bad. Nazis are bad. <laughs> Cemetery advocates for the badness of Nazis. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was a hundred percent thinking of that throughout the whole entire movie because at one point they were talking about how the uh, like the the president and he, him doing something like to, to oh, counteract yeah. the the whole uh, zombie thing and I was like imagine if we had a zombie outbreak right now that would be just the worst case scenario because he would not be able to he would not be able to, to come up with any any solution to the zombies he would like try to befriend the zombies and the zombies you know there are very fine people in the zombie horde I hear yeah so that's, yeah, that was that was killing not me not all zombies. I want to go back to also to the uh, to the the music part, and we kind of talked about that at yeah. the beginning. Um, and Lydia, you were talking about that you like the kind of circus music addition to to the to the film. What, what did you guys think of the music in this movie? Um, it, clearly, we were all kind of watching various different versions, and that there's. You know, like like we alluded to at the beginning, there's there's a lot of different forms, but at least in the version that you watched, what was what was kind of the music like, um, and how did it what did it add to the especially the the parts with them in the mall? I guess what I liked about the circus music, and I guess kind of the stock music that you just hear in malls, like it gave it a really comedic, surreal sort of atmosphere. Yeah. And I can't remember any of the goblin pieces, unfortunately, <laughs> that didn't stick out as much to me. There's, I didn't like. I didn't go out looking to confirm what I thought were the goblin pieces were the goblin pieces. I just kind of assumed like, oh, there are these tracks that sound kind of prog, Pink Floydy, um, and I just assumed that was the goblin stuff. So if that is correct. Um, I think it's interesting how the use of library music in the beginning sort of like sort of almost sets it up to the way it's filmed, set it up almost as um, like a TV police procedural. Um, and, you, you know, you don't really see the zombies yet and everything's just in chaos and you're following these sort of very TV show like 
archetypes of the news anchors and the cops and you're following them sort of on the job. But then once you have the Goblin soundtrack come comes in, it sort of it it, it takes it off on this sort of extension from that and it's like okay no this is not this kind of normal structured mediated world that we are familiar with it's it's something off of that it's something uncanny um, and so kind of that slipping back and forth between those I thought was interesting totally and like you said Lydia like the circus music and some of the other pieces and some of like this some of the soundtrack where you hear the mall broadcast announcements add this ironic tone to it and just kind of this like thinking about zombies as a circus just like wandering around this enclosed space like circus performers just or or like a carousel um just going around and around or down the up escalator (laughs) yeah i think is sort of just this like fitting um ironic commentary i don't know i like the way that this movie is funny it's not like it's 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 in a way that's both sort of ironic and tongue in cheek and poking fun at uh, commercial culture, but it's also like really physical too. Does anyone um, enjoy the Goblin score as here as much as they do in Suspiria? No, it's not as overwhelming because like what's so good in Suspiria is it like knocks you over, <laughs> and I don't think that yeah, happens. It's the driving force of the movie in here. a lot of ways. Yeah. Um. As we kind of wrap up and kind of, I want to do uh, closing thoughts in this kind of form where it seemed like everybody really responded highly to this movie. I think everybody really, really liked it. Um, so kind of as closing thoughts, I'm curious, you know, to you, what was, what did you respond most to about this movie? What what made Dawn of the Dead so great in your eyes that, that you just kind of saw this as this immediate, yeah, this is a four and a half, five star movie. Lydia. there's nothing wrong with the boring horror moral as long as they do it in a good way which i think this does yeah for me it was a combination of of three things um first you've got that Sweet, sweet uh, anti-capitalist commentary that I'm always a big sucker for. Uh, anything that I can project my lefty politics on, uh, I'm a fan of. Uh, mixed with that, uh, like I mentioned, that that sort of uh, almost poignant, ironic, uh, but also physical body humor. Um, and then finally, this just like really taut, uh, formal precision. Um, just the, the the framing is just so like angular. And I love movies that use these these kind of liminal spaces um, 
and really, I don't know, I guess like visually investigate them and, and, uh, are able to make something really beautiful out of spaces that we're supposed to ignore and not think about structurally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go back to Lydia's point that she made when we were talking about Die Hard last December, which is that that movie is, is a fun foundational text uh, that people built off of and expanded outwards into many different genres and sub subgenres. Uh, the same is true for the two Romero movies I've seen. I've only seen Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, so I can't necessarily speak to Romero as a whole, but both of those movies are just so obviously stone-cold classics that have served as the foundation for you know huge swaths of American cinema. Uh, and I think that Dawn of the Dead is my favorite of those two. And in a lot of ways, it's it's this American horror epic that encompasses, like I said, a lot of different aspects of American culture um, while staying true to conventions of genre and, and like being a titillating piece of entertainment. Um, and I did not feel that the epic runtime was a detriment to the movie in the same way that Blade Runner 2049 <laughs> was a huge detriment Everything to the movie. Everything is just a, a coded Blade yes, Runner um, I, I thought that <laughs> the two hours and 20 minutes, this thing that I watched, really cooked from beginning to end. And uh, I would recommend this to, to anybody who, maybe if you're not even... Uh, that seasoned of a horror fan. Oh, this would be a great uh, this, place to start. Yeah, this is this is a good entry level uh, film. But you know, I'm seeing this for the first time, having watched you know, well over a hundred horror movies, and I, I was still kind of blown away by this thing. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that it really does have this deep foundational quality to it. It 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 seems. Um, I think that you, you, if you watch it today, you kind of can see and, and feel the cliches in it, but that's just because it was made, it, it was the first one. It, it kind yeah. of, we've talked about this a number of times before with, with these kind of foundational movies that we've watched. Um, but I think that, again, a lot of the points that you guys have made, it, it, it bears itself being this this seminal work it's so it's it's very well constructed i think that it's you know a very smart movie but it's also deeply entertaining you have these kind of long you know it, it's incredibly entertaining to watch the the rednecks <laughs> just shoot zombies with glee that's, that's all they, that's all they've ever asked for in um and so yeah i, I think that it, it definitely in, in um makes me want to dig more into Romero's work. I think that this was a, is, is a great point um, to start at. And I kind of, and, and I understand why this is, this is an entry for a lot of people into, you know, horror and genre and a number of other avenues. I think that this um, carries a lot of, you know, a lot of great qualities. And I think that it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic film. Um, but yeah, I guess that'll wrap up, th- wrap things up. Uh, you can find Cinematary online. We're at uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinematary. At Twitter at handle at Cinematary. And on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash Cinematary. We'll repost all of the episodes that we talked about today. Uh, all the movies we talked about today. Not all the episodes we talked about today. I think we talked about a lot of episodes <laughs> as well. Uh, and on the next episode, we will be continuing our October Horror Series with 1992's Candyman. 
We're actually we're gonna record that immediately after this. So if anything monumental happens in the film world between now and next week, we just haven't heard about it. Yeah, it's just so because we're usually the, we're we're usually the ones who have to you know come in and make a comment on it. Harvey Weinstein's a bad person. All right, thank you for thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>